All right. If you want to grab a seat, that'd be awesome. So good. Um, I'm, uh, I'm really getting excited about our encounter weekend. I know you don't want to hear any more about it. Can I, can I say something just for a second about uh, what we've done? Caleb can attest to this uh, in terms of parenting approach. We make our kids go to good stuff that we know is going to be good for them. And they sometimes like go kicking and screaming. And you know what? Time and time again, especially when we really know it's going to be great, a great experience for them. Uh, when they come back, they say, yeah, it was great. You were right, Mom and Dad. We didn't want to go. So glad we went. You ever had that? You had that kind of experience? It's kind of like um, being part of a life group. You go, oh, do I want another night? Like another night in my week. And uh, every time I, I mean, in, in our life group this week, I was in tears at the end of it. I felt so connected to the other individuals who were in our group. And I was just like, this is so good. Why, do, why is this so hard for us to do the right thing, the good thing? Well, the Encounter Weekend, I think, is going to be like that. I, I'm going to tell you, it's going to be good. We're going to, there's going to be fellowship. We're going to have food. It's going to be an opportunity to connect with God and with one another. And uh, I just have a sense for some of us, this is going to be a life changer. And uh, so I, I want to encourage you, don't wait till you see if you feel, about, feel good about it. Because you'll probably say no to lots of good things that you actually don't feel like doing. Um, and it's so great to do those things, whether you feel like it or not. And I'm, I'm going to speak as your pastor here for a minute. You're going to love it. You're going to really enjoy it. It's going to be good for your soul. Amen? You hear me? All right. Even if you don't, I'm going to tell you anyway, like a good parent, although I'm not your parent. Okay, diving into our series this morning, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew or back into Matthew, and uh, you can turn to the sixth chapter, Matthew 6. Uh, we're going to be looking at a little passage, Matthew 6, 16 to 18, and as you're finding that, uh, why don't we pray? Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come this morning, and we're just thankful it, it, we were able to sing that song, just sensed your spirit moving in us as we sung of your goodness, God, this morning. You've all been faithful. We can look back at our lives, and we can see in ways where you've met us in times where we've been desperate and discouraged. You've, you've brought hope into our lives, God. Indeed, Lord, you have been faithful, and we give you thanks. And I love the fact that you speak to us, and uh, Jesus, uh, your words are life, and we want to live according to your words. We want to walk in your way. Teach us more this morning about what your way looks like and how we might live life to the fullest. We pray this thing, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 6, verse 16. Jesus said, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, these are the words of Jesus. Fasting. What a weird idea. <laughs> Like, who would ever want to do this, right? Like, to forego food or whatever. Why would you be hungry and not eat right away? Like, why would you have an appetite and just not immediately, in the moment, satisfy it? Who would ever deliberately deny themselves something? 
I, I mean, isn't it common knowledge that the most the, the, the road really to the good life is making sure you satisfy any craving with the, the shortest possible time delay. So fasting, I'm not sure that you're going to want to do it. It's like this strange ancient practice which seems to be designed for um, little monks, you know, in monasteries who kind of enjoy, in our minds, enjoy being miserable or it just... The question is, is where does fasting fit in kind of our modern, enlightened day? But Jesus did cover it on his sermon, in his Sermon on the Mount, and so we are going to talk about it this morning. In fact, it's not just Jesus. If you look at people in the Bible who fasted, it's like a who's who in Scripture. Moses fasted, so did King David, Elijah, Ezra the priest, prophets like Zechariah, Jeremiah, Amos, Isaiah called for a great fast, that was connected to social justice and care for the hungry and the poor. When Esther had to risk her life by presenting her request to the king of Persia, she first went to her friends and fasted and prayed with them for three days and called the Israelites to do the same. On Yom Kippur, the the Day of Atonement, all of Israel would fast in repentance for their sin. And then the New Testament, uh, an old woman named Anna, you might remember her, was actually prepared to recognize the baby Jesus by a lifetime of prayer and fasting. John the Baptist fasted. Jesus himself began his ministry with 40 days of fasting and prayer. When the apostle Paul met Jesus, he fasted for three days. Then later, the early church worshipped with fasting and prayer when the Holy Spirit told them to commission Paul for ministry. Then later, Paul would fast and pray to identify elders for the churches he began. Now I know, you don't need to fast. I'm just telling you what's in the Bible here. Fasting is associated in the Bible with repentance for sin. It's uh, connected in Scripture with great breakthroughs in life and in prayer. And it's often a part of worship. Often it accompanies prayers for guidance from God. It's also connected to one of the more interesting stories in the Bible. How many of you remember Jonah? It's so much fun, that story. Uh, Jonah... He went to preach in Nineveh. He didn't want to go. He tried to run away. He got swallowed by a fish and uh, got regurgitated by that fish. He preached in Nineveh, what's arguably the worst sermon in history. Like, this is all he said, 40 days and you will be overthrown. You know, that was his whole sermon. There was nothing about God or grace or, or what to do or how to respond. But look at the response. Uh, we read, the Ninevites believe God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. This is a a pagan city, and on their first day of faith, they're fasting. And not just that, the the king of Nineveh issued this proclamation. He said, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. So it's not just the pagan foreigners, their animals are fasting. By the way, I don't think the animals are happy about this, but they're fasting. Now again, we don't need to do this, but just out of curiosity, why was fasting such a big deal in the ancient world? In fact, it uh, wasn't even invented in the Bible. Many people fasted, people like Confucius. Or in ancient Greece, you had people like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato, they all fasted. It was widely considered 
a helpful practice for human flourishing. And then in the Bible, and especially with Jesus, fasting becomes a way to experience and depend on the reality of the kingdom and the presence and the power of God in ways which we'll see. What is fasting? Fasting is simply abstaining from food, possibly drink, or possibly other things for a period of time. You can decide how long that period is. It has to be long enough to actually experience some hunger. Like the time between breakfast and lunch doesn't count. Yeah, that's not really a fast. Although sometimes it feels like a long time. <laughs> now at first, when I began to fast years ago, I began to see, I began to fast because I saw just how much the Bible talks about fasting. And it's not like I wanted to do it. Because as this ought to be obvious to, to many of you, I love food. Like, I really love food. I love feasting. I love that we have a bread ministry. I love uh, butter. I love chocolate. I love pizza. I love sushi. I really love teen burgers. But I'll settle for an uncle burger, a mama burger, a papa burger. I'll, I'll do that too. I love gelato. Who doesn't love gelato? And ice cream and, and cheesecake and and. Dairy Queen blizzards. I love Dairy Queen blizzards. And what's McDonald's version? McFlurries will do. They really are pretty good too. Um, I love Slovaki and Dosa and Bulgobi. I, I, I love barbecued anything. <laughs> really, it's true. I love uh, popcorns and peanuts and Krispy Kreme donuts. And I love kettle fried anything. And and this is for your family, and even in a push, I'll settle for deep-fried tofu. I didn't say I love it. I actually kind of like it. Chili will fix just about anything. A little bit of chili powder will just you know, correct a multitude of sins. Right? Yeah, right? I didn't even mention how much I love curry, but you know, that's a given, right? That's just a, you guys know that about me. Now, thank God that fasting doesn't mean it's wrong to love food. I mean, God, food, when you think about it, was God's idea. Food is good. I mean, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Um, for us here at Hillside, God answered that with cobs, right? <laughs> That's how, part of how he answered that. But our desires, they actually need to be disciplined, or they can become our idols, or they can become our gods. The first thing I noticed uh, when I began to fast was I got really hungry. Like, I realized how much my body just insists on having its own way, right? Uh, I began to learn about the kind of grip that food has on my life, and I discovered how that sometimes I use food or whatever to comfort my flesh. Yeah, to, to avoid being bored, to, to avoid feeling sad, uh, to, to avoid a sense of maybe a lack of self-worth or maybe a sense of inner emptiness. I can eat to comfort myself. I begin to learn this when I fast. Then there's this. In, in, in fasting, I, I begin to discover it's possible to have an unsatisfied appetite and survive. And in fasting, I can learn that it's actually possible to have an unsatisfied appetite and actually thrive. I can learn in, in, in small ways the art of suffering happily. I know, I know. You don't need to know this. I, I know this, but, but hear me out. As I was looking in, into this topic, I was reminded of one of the most famous research 
studies of the 20th century. It's now nicknamed the marshmallow test. I love it. Researchers would uh, give a five-year-old, would give five-year-old children a marshmallow. They're alone by themselves in a room. They'd give them a marshmallow and say, if, if you want, you can eat this now, but if you wait for 15 minutes, we'll give you a second marshmallow. It, it's really quite something. It's like uh, Genesis 3 for kinder, kindergartners. You shall not eat of the marshmallow of good and evil or something like that. And I've seen footage of this research, and it's amazing to watch these kids sitting there with their marshmallow, smelling their marshmallow, fondling their marshmallow, squeezing the marshmallow. Some of them licked the marshmallow thinking that that's okay. And then, of course, uh, some break down, and before the 15 minutes is up, they, they pop it in their mouth and they eat it and, with gusto. But some wait the whole 15 minutes. It, it, it's like watching the ancient human struggle for, between appetite and like self-control. I wonder this morning, do you know what your marshmallow would be? What would be your temptation? What, what's your marshmallow in your life? Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's a, a wrong relationship. Maybe it's uh, gossip, tendency to slander others. Maybe it's, it's money. Maybe it's being judgmental. We're going to look at that in a few weeks. Maybe it's porn. Uh, maybe it's indulging, you know, resentment. But you know what temptation does is it, is it comes to you and it whispers, you're entitled to this. You need to do this. You, you've been working so hard. You've resisted so much. You're entitled to be happy. What you want isn't that bad. What you want will make you feel good. See, the children in this marshmallow study, they were learning to do this little tiny 15-minute fast. What's remarkable about that study is that the children who at the age of five were, who were able to say no to the marshmallow, they grew up with healthier bodies, they did better at school, they were more successful in their work, they had more stable relationships, and they had fewer problems with substance abuse. Fasting is a, a little practice that God gives that, you, that can help you be in charge of your body instead of the other way around. Now, this is a great time, again, to talk about the role of spiritual disciplines in the life of a Jesus apprentice. Paul once wrote about athletes trying to win a great contest, and he said this. He said, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. You know, author uh, and pastor John Orberg uh, talks a lot about the difference between trying to do something versus training to do something. Think about this for a second. How many of you, if you were to go out today uh, and, you know, if you were to actually run a marathon, how many of you could actually pull that off? Let's see a showing of hands. You could probably run a marathon if you went out today. I, I, I see like two hands. Okay, how about this? How many of you, if you went out today and you could run every step of a, a marathon if you tried really, really hard, how many of you might be able to do it then? Running, not walking. Okay, I, I, I see, like, there was a couple more hands, but not many more. Now, my guess is a lot of us, maybe, maybe actually most of us, could eventually run a marathon if we did one thing. What's that? If we trained, right? What does it mean to train? 
To train means that I arrange my life around those activities that enable me to do what I can't do now by direct effort. Ortberg puts it this way. We tend to overestimate what we can do by trying really hard and underestimate what we can do by training. It's true in athletics. It's true in music. It's true in the pursuit of study. It's no less true of of character formation or spiritual life. This is why the Apostle Paul says, train yourself to godliness. Uh, It's why Jesus says, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So the spiritual disciplines are practices or activities that actually train us or give us power to live in the goodness of God's kingdom. I know uh, words like training and discipline are just awful words, aren't they? Who wants to do that? But this is key. Spiritual disciplines are not necessarily unpleasant. Some of you really know this, but let me give you an example. In the Bible, one of the great commandments we hear over and over again is, is what? Rejoice. Again, we're, and again, we're told to rejoice. rejoice. Joy is listed second as one of the fruits of the Spirit. And often people hear that and they think, i got to try harder to be joyful. <laughs> no, it crushes people when they think, that spiritual life is about trying really hard. It'd be better, <laughs> it'd be really no better than trying really hard to run a marathon today than trying to be joyful, to put that on. But get this, you can become a more joyful person if you train for joy. You didn't think you'd hear about this in church, did you? Now this, is, this will often include what's called uh, the spiritual discipline, the celebration, the discipline of celebration, I should say. And I want to point out something this morning. When we're talking about fasting, the Bible also has a boatload of stuff to talk about with regards to feasts and celebrations and holidays and music and expressions of of praise and gratitude. So if you struggle with joylessness, I'd recommend one thing. Take one day a week and set it as your joy day. Practice joy. Train for joy. Have a day of celebration. Uh, Wear what you love to wear. Eat what you love to eat. Listen to music you really like. Be with people who fill you with joy. Uh, There will be people, by the way, who don't fill you with joy. They might be for you like black holes of joy. Can you think of somebody? Don't nudge them if they're beside you. Do not do that. That would not be good. But... (laughs) But you can tell them one day a week, say, I can't be with you today. This is my joy day. I can be with you tomorrow, right? See, the purpose of spiritual discipline is freedom. That's the aim. The reason a, a, a pianist practices so much, why they do the scales, is, is so eventually they'd be free to play great music with ease. It's, uh, it's true of great athletes, uh, like Andre de Grasse, you know, the the. Canadian sprinting champion. Did you see him run this summer, the 200 meter? And the race before, the qualifier for that race was even more informative because it looked effortless for him. He didn't even look like he was trying. Why is that? He trained to the place where he was so natural, it became so natural to him, so, so a part of him, he could just do it and flourish at it and love it. The purpose of disciplines, including spiritual disciplines, is to be able to do what you need to do when you need to do it. Spiritual disciplines are a means to an end. And and here's what I think is a helpful thought. 
which disciplines you choose to do uh, probably depend partly on what you actually struggle with in your life. If you wrestle with gossip, the practice of silence might be helpful to you. If you tend towards isolation, the practice of fellowship would probably be helpful for you. If you wrestle with hurry, which many of us do, deliberately practicing the practice of slowness. You know, maybe as I've said before, choosing the, the slowest, the longest line at the grocery checkout or choosing the slowest lane on the freeway and just allowing that train you towards being, living an unhurried life. See, fasting is a means to an end, which is experiencing the freedom from being ruled by your desires. Let me say, if, if your appetite for, for food, for sex, for money, for pleasure, for power, if, it, if those things are kind of at bay, then if you don't need to fast, don't fast. Um, I want to say this. See, fasting, you know, it's one of those things that, and I wonder this morning if maybe some of you actually struggle with an eating disorder. And, and just listening to this message is painful. The whole topic of food is painful for you. Uh, if, if, if that's it, I, I want to just say to you, it, I, I'm so glad you're here. There's place for you here at this church. This is the kind of community where nobody is perfect. We are all just train wrecks apart from God, and God wants to flood your life with his grace and with his mercy. And maybe for that reason or for some other medical reason that, that fasting would not be helpful for you, then, then don't fast. And for sure, do not feel guilty about it. See, our goal in our lives is to, to live our lives immersed in God's kingdom of love and power. Not to see how many disciplines we can do. That's the wrong kind of righteousness. But for some of us, those, uh, our bodies are, are particularly stubborn about having their own way. Like mine, for example. Fasting can be a real helpful practice. Now here's another important key. Uh, the most important dynamic about any spiritual discipline is to practice it in a spirit of humility and freedom and surrender and grace. It's so interesting, the psalmist said, I humbled myself with fasting. And Jesus told a story one time about a Pharisee, a, a religious leader, who was really proud, and he prayed, <laughs> he actually prayed this out loud, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, I fast twice a week. And what you know, Pharisees in Jesus' day had a custom of fasting, uh, usually twice a week, Mondays. And Thursdays, which, as it happens, were market days when they, had the, when they would have had the biggest possible audience. And so if you walk around saying, look at me, I'm fasting, I can do it for days, I love God so much, I can make myself miserable, I can probably make you miserable too. <laughs> you, you end up doing worse than if you'd never fasted at all. That's why Jesus says, if you wrestle with this, try secrecy. Do something good like fasting, but just don't tell anyone about it. You know, you, you can learn through secrecy that you can live without the approval of others. In, in Jesus' day, when people fasted, they'd often make a big show of it. They'd, they'd wear sackcloth. They'd put ashes in their hair. And, and so everybody would, would know they're fasting. They were so proud of their humility. It's like what Ted, Ted Turner once said. He said, if I had a little bit of humility... I'd be perfect. 
You see, unless spiritual disciplines are practiced in humility and grace for the purpose of freedom, they can leave you worse off if you've never done them. Okay, now I, I know that most of you aren't going to want to do this, but in case anyone here would actually like to try the fasting deal, I'll give you two approaches for fasting that you could maybe even attempt this week. The first one is this, fasting as feasting on God. The time frame I, I first used when I began to fast was a 24-hour fast. I'd, end, I'd start at, after dinner on, on an evening and skip breakfast and lunch the next day and resume eating at the next dinner. That's kind of a good starter fast. It's a good place to, to start. It's, it's something that I've been able to incorporate into my weekly rhythm, my weekly life. And I know others of you that do this too. Now, when I fast, this is kind of important. I'm, I'm not just avoiding food. I'm making space to be nourished by God. Um, Jesus makes a fascinating statement to help us with this. He fasts at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Like, probably the most unnecessary statement in the Bible. Like, right? Jesus was hungry, for sure. But I think the writer wants us to know that Jesus was a real human being like you and me, and that he experienced the pain of hunger. The tempter comes to Jesus and whispers to him, Jesus, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Eat the marshmallow. You're entitled. You're the son of God. You don't have to deliberately suffer. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus means this literally. It's not just another pretty saying. And it begs the question, how can a word be food? It goes pretty deep, and we're not going to go as deep as it goes, but I want to ask you, can you remember a time when a friend or a parent or someone you love or somebody that you look up to or respect kind of called you out in a positive way? They said something encouraging to you, and it wasn't just about something you did. It was maybe deeper. It was about something about who you were. And it was so positive. How did you feel in that moment? Can you think of a moment like that? I hope you can. Tell me that's not food. Tell me that that hasn't nourished you in, in a deeper way than a dinner out at a steakhouse. Right? That's the power of words. Words have power. We live in a kingdom of words. In John 4, Jesus and his disciples were on a journey, and they'd gone into town to get food because, you know, everyone was hungry. And the disciples come back to Jesus, and they find, they find him engaged in spiritual conversation with a Samaritan woman. Amazing conversation. And they're saying to Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And people will look at that statement and say, it's another pretty saying. But, but Jesus actually was not a pretty saying kind of guy. Jesus was feasting on the love and the presence and the meaning of his father. And also Jesus was getting a, a front row seat to some wonderful work of transformation that was happening in a broken woman's life. And to, to Jesus, that was food to him, a meal for the soul. Let me ask you again. Can you think of a moment in your life where God did something in you or through you that was truly profound. You helped somebody, and it was awesome. God, God showed up, 
God, God was real through you to that person. Or you gave a gift or, uh, you know, you prayed a prayer and God answered it. I think of when I, I went to Kenya for, for the first time and we'd been having these gala fundraisers and we'd had this vision of, of loving on this community in Kenya uh, for, for a few years by then. And this is my first chance to go. And I remember getting there on the ground and seeing the kind of blessing that our gifts made and the difference it made in, in that community of Boro, Kenya. I mean, I, I could have gone without food for weeks living on the fumes of that experience. Just I'm going, God, you are so good. What a great gift to be part of this. That's a meal for the soul. In fasting, it, <laughs> there's so many benefits, uh, but in, in it I, I strategically focus my attention on God to listen to him, to consider God's words to us, God's words to you. And folks, you can do that right now. Why don't you just close your eyes for a moment. Just bear with me for just a few seconds. You can take the word of God into your soul. Allow these to be words from God to you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want I will fear no evil, for you are with me. What can separate me from the love of Christ? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay. You see, fasting can be feasting on God, literally. That's, that's one of the benefits of fasting. The second one is fasting as caring. You know, one of the most powerful passages in the Bible is the 58th chapter of Isaiah. The people are complaining to God. They, they keep humbling themselves. They're fasting. They're praying. They're crying out. And God doesn't seem to notice. He doesn't give them what they want. And so God tells them the problem. He says this. He says, yet on your day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? The, the rest of the, the chapter is, is just a powerful connection between the power of fasting rightly practiced and a passionate sense of concern or care for the poor and the hungry and the oppressed. It's a passage that has actually inspired huge movements of social justice for now over 2,000 years. See, fasting, when it is done unto the Lord, is the opposite of self-centered preoccupation. Fasting can help focus our hearts and our minds and desires off of ourselves and onto a, a broken world around us. We can begin to see the need of others. 
when I do this kind of fast, my, my body actually tells me I'm hungry. And in that moment, I can remember my brothers and sisters who have no bread and, and have no money to buy bread. The, 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 the temporary and, and very small pain in my body speaks to the very ongoing and very large pain in theirs. It can be a cue for us to remember the suffering in our world. God begins to then grow, grow compassion in me, and I, I get trained in compassion. I remember that I have money, and I could be generous with it. Now, maybe God is calling me to give up something besides food, and he does that. I have a friend uh, who prayed prior to Lent one year, God, what do you want me to give up for Lent for the 40 days and Sundays before Easter? And the thought that popped into his mind was coffee. That was the first thought. The second thought was, no, not coffee. <laughs> and finally, the third thought was this. What if God is calling me to give up coffee because it has a grip on me that would be good to tame? Maybe it's coffee. Uh, maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's spending. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's whatever the thought is that when it comes to you, you kind of in your heart say, no, not that. No, not that, Lord. Anything that you say, no, not that, probably means that you might actually, it might have a hold on you that's unhealthy. I talked to Jesus about that. Ask God to guide you. Maybe you'll want to fast occasionally and, and take the money that you would have spent on food. You know, that lunch out that you do once a week, take that money and, and actually put it on actually delivering other people from hunger. What if we as a people began to get free from the clutches of our appetites and the insatiable desire that we have for more and that persistent kind of weakness of our own flesh? What if we got more compassionate about uh, the hungry and those who are needy and those in poverty and those who are going through desperate times? What if in new ways we learned how to feast on God? Wouldn't that be good? You don't have to do it, but you can, and maybe you should. Why don't we pray? I'm going to call the worship team up. God, how is it that you want me to live free in your kingdom? Lord, you know what the marshmallow is in my life. You know what the marshmallow is in our lives that has just too much say that thing that we might be tempted to say, no, not that, I, I, I need that. Thank you that you make it possible for us to grow into the reality and power of your kingdom. We ask you, gracious Father, would you lead us, every one of us, into this great adventure? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.